0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr.
1: Nick. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Joining me in the studio this morning, it's my great pleasure to welcome to Radiotherapy a new panellist, Prudence Dear, Welcome.
0: Oh, hi Nick. It's lovely to be here today on this bright sunny morning. <laughs>
1: well, it's lovely to have you. You've got an amazing background because you trained first of all in things like physiology and neuroscience, you did some research in sensory physiology and toxicology, but <laughs> you then somehow went on to be a software engineer, a project manager and at some point you decided to retrain as a psychotherapist. Now that, that is quite a career trajectory.
0: Oh, thank you, Nick. Yeah, I guess variety is the spice of life. It also <laughs> gives away a bit, that actually, probably how old I am. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, you kind of crammed all that on him
1: by oh, the I,
2: time
0: I, you're 25. <laughs> that's right. It would have been difficult.
2: He's uh, trying.
1: Anyway, lovely to have you behind the microphone. Sitting next to Prudence, dear, is Radiotherapy's very own medical student, Miss Diagnosis. Welcome back, Miss Diagnosis.
2: Good morning and happy Easter to all of you.
1: Uh, happy Easter to you. You've, you've been away, wandering around rural Australia somewhere, rather, haven't you?
2: Yeah, that's right. I was in uh, rural New South Wales for placement.
1: And how how did you find rural Australia?
2: Uh, it was fantastic, I actually. Um, I miss it a little bit already. I I had such a sense of community while I was there, and even. You know, I was swimming in the outdoor pool while I was there and the um, the guys who used to swim next to me invited me to join them to swim laps. And so, you know, within a week of being in this, this sort of rural town, already you've got a community there that you can kind of swim laps with at the pool. And I just, in some ways, don't have that same community here in Melbourne.
1: That is very special, isn't it? That's yeah. a, such a rural Australia story. Uh, well, we'll be coming back to your experience of rural Australia and some aspects of that. We'll be talking all sorts of things this morning. We're going to be talking about... The joyous topic of cancer, government funding, uh, investigations. We're going to talk about the new uh, Australian government, well, sorry, Victorian government's uh, real-time prescription monitoring service. And we'll be doing all that. But first, we're going to catch up with a little bit of medical news.
0: Doctor, doctor.
1: So you're here on Radiotherapy on RRR 102.7 on the FM band with Prudence, dear, misdiagnosis, myself, Dr Nick, and I omitted to introduce Panel Beater. Oh, there he is, just quietly getting on with the job behind the desk there, twiddling the (laughs) box. Knobs and buttons and so on, and, and saying good morning to good us. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Good morning, everybody. Oh, you, you just do that job so sublimely. Oh, it's, do I? Like they used to say about the lighting technicians in theatre if you don't know they're there, then they're doing uh, their job. Yeah. So, well, so wonderful to have you here and to great be to on be on board. With you. Thank you for that. Um, so, Prudence, dear, um, uh, you've been having yeah. a look at what's been tickling your old ribs in the in the news today.
0: Absolutely. And I guess, you know, obviously for most people, they probably notice there's an election coming up in, the, in a few weeks' time. And I think the you know the battle lines are being drawn and redrawn in the lead up to that federal election and in the spotlight recently has been the budget for health and i think it's important i'm not taking a partisan position here because i think you know health is way too important to all of us and and all sides of the election will be seeking i think to woo voters with promises of greater expenditure on something that we all value last week uh, bill Shorten, the leader of the opposition announced that his party if they were to win um would be um you know going to boost funding to medicare by the amount of 2.3 billion dollars 2.3 billion number, isn't yeah. It? Yeah. wow 2.3 um when you take into account i think and it's quite difficult when you try and unpick these numbers to find out exactly what's what because they're they're very complex and quite detailed but what i can currently work out is that the sort of the medicare budget is about 99 billion dollars per year um, and the sort of total sp- commonwealth spend on health is in the region of like 180 billion dollars per annum right so this um, um, you know, that's that's not an insignificant amount, but obviously 2.3 billion is probably about, you know, a couple of percent all up. Um, what they were actually offering that 2.3 billion was actually to cover the sort of out-of-pocket expenses for cancer patients. And um, I suppose, you know, if you think of um, what it means for people, especially who are undergoing uh, lengthy treatments and obviously many sort of tests and lots of visits to the doctor and probably also at the same time not actually being able to work or having run out of paid sick leave if they're fortunate enough to have that. Um, out-of-pocket expenses can be quite significant. And for a scan, for example, um, that might be used for diagnostic purposes, if they're not under the, um, the safety net at that time, it could be $200 out-of-pocket.
1: It's actually a really important point, what you say, about all the other hidden costs. Yeah, so absolutely. D- d- someone I know very well recently, their child was diagnosed with a form of leukaemia. Um, it's not just the cost of the treatment, but essentially both parents had to stop work. Yeah. for a very long yeah. period of time to help manage this transition. It made a huge impact well, on their family right. economy.
0: I mean, we look at, the, you know, obviously, yeah, the, the potential impacts on individuals and families is quite substantial. But the £2.3 right.
1: billion is not trying to reimburse any income lost, is it? It's
0: no, it's to cover those out-of-pocket expenses. So it is those gaps. That when you go and have a consult with an oncologist or a surgeon, there will be a, probably an out-of-pocket expense. Um, likewise with a lot of the sort of diagnostic uh, scanning type processes. So, yeah it's so, kind of uh, helping with that.
1: And you said you're not partisan in this. So <laughs> 2.3 billion promised by Labour for this. What, <laughs> what what have the others promised? Well, the
0: there's quite a lot. I mean, again, it gets quite difficult unpicking this, but, I mean, you know, the, the sort of expenditures are, are quite significant, oh. even from uh, what the government's talking. They're definitely going to come back with uh, something that equals or betters that. Um, I guess, you know, there's a, also a kind of question, though, is where we spend our money in terms of health. And, you know, this is not insignificant, isn't it? $2.3 billion for cancer patients... And then, if you were, for example, though, to look at um, you know the major causes of, of death in this country, heart disease is the number one. If you look at the statistics, you know, followed closely by diabetes, and osteoarthritis, and so on. You know, sort of disease diseases that we have, and you know, yeah, those sort of dementia and cerebrovascular diseases are sort of the, the sort of in the really top sort of ten of causes of death. Whereas The way we study, the way we actually report on cancer, we break it down into all the individual cancers. So on one hand, it could look like, hey, you know, heart disease ought to be getting a lot more money than it's currently getting. Um, but on the other hand, you can look at it. If you group all the cancers together, then we're actually looking at quite a substantial number of, of people being directly affected.
1: So, do you think there's a more political bang for your buck to put money into cancer prevention rather than helping dementia or age services or people with disabilities? Depends, yeah, look, I
0: mean, it depends how cynical you are, really. But obviously, cynical cancer cancer is um, a, it's a very emotive uh, term. It's a very emotive disease. It impacts a lot of people, and I think you know we we do react very strongly to that yeah well it's Easter Sunday the bunnies are hopping around the garden so let's take the fluffy uh,
1: happy view of it that this is a really good news story that there's potentially over two billion dollars to yeah, help well, people with cancer so um, a slightly less good news story which I, I spotted was um, talking flu which is as a GP one of our, our big topics and the um, number of flu cases so far in Victoria this year has been completely staggering uh, as of the beginning of last week it was uh, over five 5,700 confirmed cases, which is massively more than we normally see at this time of year. Mm. Uh, most of them type A flu, which is one of the main ones that we're vaccinating against. Um, so, if people don't realise this, there's a, there's a huge amount of flu started already. We were previously talking about maybe delaying the flu vaccine because flu doesn't come on till later in the season. We, <laughs> we've turned that on its tail. When I was saying, oh, probably a good idea to get on, to get your flu. Who here has had their flu vaccine? Oh, yeah, but I've had mine. I had mine last week. Misdiagnosis. Shaking your head doesn't work on radio.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I've given a lot of flu vaccines in the last couple of weeks. I just haven't done you it haven't myself. You
1: haven't auto-inoculated? No. OK, time to get I confess I haven't had mine done either. What
3: about you, Kent? No, I haven't, despite the university offering everybody uh, freebies. But uh, Bron was the alarm bell from our... Radio Marinara. She got it uh, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago.
1: Well, there was another show host. Not, not
3: the, the jab.
1: Got the flu. Yeah. Well, there was a, yeah. another show host from Radio Therapy who will remain nameless. Who I proved had type A flu, not a couple of weeks ago. So, as we always say in Radio Land, there's plenty of it of that. Three
3: triple R.
1: Me, Dr. Nick, we've got Prudence Deer misdiagnosis, and panel beta here in the student, student. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. Yeah, student as um, And uh, uh, Prudence Deer is our, our uh, new guest here. We're going to uh, just let people know that amongst your many jobs and many hats that you've worn over the years, you actually were the founder and original director of Ovarian Cancer Australia.
0: That's right, yeah. Well, a that's beautiful incredibly
1: impressive. And how yeah, long, how long ago did you set that up?
0: Well, we set that up in 2001. So, you know, and, and setting up a charity is always a very kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a bit of a struggle, basically. I mean, um, so, so to even survive, like, five years, actually, interestingly, it's interesting st- statistic, but if a charity can sort of, you know, exist uh, and remain financial for about five years, it probably will continue to go on. So and it does on, continue? on about 18 years. Absolutely, yes. It's okay. kind of the, it's the peak body for ovarian cancer sort of especially around um, you know advocating for, for consumers for patients um, promoting funding fundraising, um, fundraising whole okay. range of things absolutely so ovarian perfect. cancer australia look up on their website
1: <laughs> so perfect segue so to what you want to talk about this yeah. morning
0: I think so Nick um, yeah well look following on really about um, you know wh- what's happening in the health spending region from a, a Commonwealth government perspective and um, back actually well it was a couple of months ago in, in February but, but uh, Greg Hunt the um, Minister of Health Commonwealth Minister of Health um, made an announcement around um, uh, finite funding for, for women's health so there's a national women's health strategy which covers 10 years from 2020 to 2030 anyway they're putting 52 million dollars into that of which and importantly, 20 million will be going towards research for um, ovarian cancer and especially with a focus on early detection and uh, yeah look I mean ovarian cancer is a sort of uh, an issue that's very close to my heart um, for a number of reasons because I've been involved in it for quite a while but actually I'll give you the you know the disclosure and that was that um, back into in 1999 so again that shows how old I am um, my, my wife <laughs> a, lot,
1: is, a lot of us can remember 1999. Okay. It
0: was just before the millennium change, wasn't it? That was great. Um, sadly, my wife was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and it was an advanced uh, stage disease, and um, she lived for 20 months after that diagnosis. Um, she did a lot of work. Uh, we both did a lot of work around that time to really get an understanding of, of cancer you know, in general, but also ovarian cancer specifically, and we found out even back then that you know, the story was not very good. So, yes. um about
1: and, and, that time. And, and ovarian cancer has always been one of those really tricky ones from the medical profession's point of view, Absolutely. because the symptoms tend to be very general and uh, non-specific. Don't they just? Yes. Yeah,
0: we'll come to that. Actually, okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> emphasise that. But I mean, what we found even back then was you know about thirteen hundred women are diagnosed each year, and at that time about nine hundred women would die each year. So the kind of the statistic, you know, the five-year survival was about forty something percent. And and even now, it's, it's about 45%. So of the women that are diagnosed, less than half will still be living five years later. So it's a serious disease, and it's, it's a very difficult one to treat. Those are very brutal statistics. It is. I'm sorry if that you know, actually upsets people mm. hearing that. But, I mean, I suppose that is a kind of essential reality. But we know, you know, that a lot of money has... Uh, over time, more money has been spent on, on, on research, which has started to help things, but it hasn't really changed that sort of outcome. So it's really important, I think, you know, yeah, that if we look at some of the statistics there, the incidence, so the, when, it, when does it occur in life? It, as you get older, it becomes more prevalent. So women in there sort of certainly, once they get to their 50s and 60s, we start to see, you know, the number of cases rising. And, of course, that coincides roughly with, you know, menopause and general sort of ageing. So it becomes quite difficult when you've got a disease which has very vague symptoms, very vague indeed.
3: Uh, Prudence, I wonder if there's a bit of a contrast to be made with your stats earlier about the big killers. Um, mm. There's the heart disease and the cancers. And most of those cancers, um, if I understand correctly, are preventable. They're lifestyle cancers, lung cancer, esophagus cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ovarian, however, is there anything preventative that we know...
0: Well, there is, there is actually. Um, uh, first of all, we do know, obviously, that age is one of the things that counts, but you can't really prevent uh, getting older. Um, but we do know that uh, probably now we know that about 20% of cases are kind of genetically linked. They're hereditary. So if we can identify people who have got those relevant mutations, which are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations in particular, which are also very prevalent in breast cancer, if we can identify those people, then we can put them under much closer sort of observation and surveillance. Um, What we do know is that, um, obviously, yes, having a strong family history is likely to predispose you. But the things that are are, are protective, well, one is having your ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. That significantly reduces, doesn't make it zero, but significantly reduces the risk. Taking the oral contraceptive pill really reduces the incidence of ovarian cancer. Um, Having kids... So having children is also a protective factor and probably as well, you know, as certainly the actual uh, having pregnancy and so on, but also breastfeeding.
1: It's a bit rough, isn't it? So you've got to take the pill, but you've got to get pregnant, then you've got to have your ovaries removed. Yeah,
0: look, I think one of the, if you like, I think the way I understand it would be the fewer times you ovulate in your life, the less likely you're going to be in terms of getting ovarian cancer. Can
1: we, can we we deal understand.
0: with one of the myths? I don't know if you've come across this yeah. one, but can deal with the myth of talcum powder? The myth of talcum powder. Well, look, um, it's been a bit controversial, hasn't it? And Johnson & Johnson in the US have been, you know, there's been um, court cases and awards against them. Back in the early days of talcum powder, obviously it was a mineral. It had all sorts of kind of nasty sort of potential things in it. Um, and the use of talcum powder, certainly in babies, and often women, you know, adult women, use it around their genital area and I know I did read some research some quite a while ago where you know particles of talc were found in ovaries you know um, so there is the potential for for talcum powder um, because of its kind of mineral nature to cause some kind of irritation or injury if it if it manages to migrate from outside the body right inside into the ovary um, so potentially you know I think the jury's still out, to be honest, as to whether uh, it is a causative factor. Modern talcs, as far as I'm aware now, are made with kind of cornstarch-type stuff and Mm -hmm. are not based on minerals. Thank you We're for that. Did.
1: No, it's, it's, it's just one that comes up on a regular basis. Mm. And I think your note of caution is, is probably wise, because I know the courts have found uh, there is culpability in the States. Yeah. It's, it seems to me exceedingly unlikely, but even on the smallest chance, I'd be avoiding dousing my lower bits with talc. Yeah, and, and especially your babies and your yeah. baby girls, I think, probably. Right. Yeah. Um, so, to,
0: tell us more. Sorry, I've interrupted yeah, you. Yeah, no, that's okay. Look, I think you know what we what we have seen is that there's, you know, there there is no screening tests. There's no, um, you know, uh, cervical smear type sort of things, HPV tests or anything like that. There's no so this, mammograms for So ovaries. this is
1: crucially important, isn't it? Because yes. people often ask about this. How can you screen me for ovarian cancer? And the
0: mm. answer is well there is no screening program no reliable screening program i mean there's been a fair bit of research over the last 10 to 20 years to try and find blood tests and so on but none of them have really made a major impact on the potential outcome and also they tend to be expensive you need to have one of the things you need with cancer is you need to have sort of like if you like some kind of gradual progression and ideally some kind of pre-cancerous stage that you can detect which happens with cervical cancer so that you know cells start to undergo changes before they become full-blown cancer if you can detect that pre sort of cancerous change then you can can take action wonderful you know it really works and we've proved that's really effective
1: which is similar with bowel cancer screening yeah, where if we pick up a blood find a polyp done.
0: exactly yeah. ovaries very deep inside the pelvis they're not visible um and we don't even know how long it takes for those changes to occur for something to be normal to them to being a cancer and there's no obvious kind of precancerous stage so yeah. You can scan them with ultrasounds. There is a blood test that can be done, but it's you know the reliability at the moment is not very high. So it's okay for diagnosis, but there's not much in the way of, of kind of preventative or early detection. Although there was a very a big, big study done in the UK over the last again probably about fifteen years, um, where they've kind of taken blood and done ultrasounds of. Over two hundred thousand women, and then those who developed ovarian cancer, they were able to go back and look at the results and the data. But it really means having blood tests and ultrasounds, like probably every twelve months, if not, and if not more often, in order to kind of pick up a significant number.
2: Can I just ask? You said that for women who carry the the BRCA mutations, Mm. that they need to be under closer observation. Yeah. If we don't have a screening test, what closer no. Observation well, the are we closer, doing?
0: closer observation um, basically will be the kind of the, the existing blood test, which is the CA125, as it's called, um, and also um, uh, yeah, an ultrasound of the ovaries. So it's about having those tests. What, what what we know is, for example, that doing those tests on a on a population that are otherwise healthy is not going to be very effective. Right, we're going to have too many false positives so we're going to go and do surgery on women who haven't got cancer but if you're in a high risk group um, then it's worth doing it would actually pay off to do that and there are a number of studies where that's actually you know, happening now including in Sydney there's um, a, a project called GeneScreen, which is particular, which is targeted at um, the Ashkenazi Jewish population, who have a very high level of of those particular, especially the BRCA2 mutation. So they are at high risk of ovarian cancer, and screening we can screen those because those people are already at high risk. So I'm I'm
1: struggling to find good news in this story because they're they're horrific data, aren't they? If you've got a five-year survival rate that's only around about 50%, we don't have Mm. a screening test. One of the arguments that I've always had put to me is that uh, the other difficulty with ovarian cancer is we have no proof that early intervention makes much difference. Is that still the case, do you know?
0: Well, I think I, I don't think that's quite correct any longer. I mean, certainly, um, it was very difficult to find, you know, uh, the condition once it's 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 you know it's once it's invading tissues around the ovaries. So once it's starting to spread, but we do know that you know prophylactic, if you like, so protect, preventative um, uh, you know, removal of the ovaries and fallopian tubes does reduce the risk. So if we've got high risk people, we can identify they've got the genetic mutations that were predispose them to the condition. If they choose, and many do, they will choose to have their ovaries removed and that will pretty much guarantee they won't get it. So
1: can we translate this into practical advice for women who are listening to this programme? At at what sort of age and in what sort of circumstances are you suggesting that... women should be going to their doctor or asking questions about this?
0: Well obviously um, first of all if you've got any history, strong family history including bre- breast cancer and certainly breast cancers that occurred in people who are young, so under 40 um, So it doesn't have to be a family history of ovarian cancer, family no, history of breast cancer, cancer well in young? Yeah, this mutation affects both you okay. see yes. and yeah, getting, getting breast cancer young is usually associated with those sorts of um, uh, mutations so if you've got a ha- family history go and see your doctor because it may be that it um, it's even possible if someone in your family has had ovarian cancer they may have been genetically tested so they may have uh, established if they have a mutation because there is, I mean, that's one of the studies that's sort of on the go now is to actually, it's called TRACEBACK it's another, you know, funded study where they're looking at, um, you know, checking people for mutations if they've had the disease and then we can go and actually then test their relatives and their offspring because that mutation may have been passed on.
1: So if a woman goes to her doctor and says, I do have a family history family of history. Breast, breast cancer with my yep. mother, for instance, or yes. my sister, yep. uh, what are we then asking the doctor to do? Are they going to do this blood test re- for the genes? Yeah, the look, gene I mean, or well, do they
0: do should refer them, basically, to a gynaecological oncologist, which is the specialist in those areas. So that's that's the person to go and see. Um, and, yes, you know, to, to have the option, I think, for getting, for getting some form of gene testing, genetic testing, to see if they've got that predisposition. Um, and then it's about making sure that they are kind of checked regularly. So again, that's it's, but I would say that's a specialist who needs to make those sorts of decisions. Otherwise, it's a case of really being aware of your body. Um, so the the vague symptoms of ovarian cancer are increased abdominal size. And bloating. Now that's a very. Co- I mean, how many women don't get you know bloating and increased abdominal size? But where it's becoming a problem, um, where there's abdominal or pelvic pain, um, where you start to feel very full after you've only eaten a very small amount of food, um, increased your sort of urinary frequency, needing to pee more often and quite urgently. Those are the key ones. If those keep, you know, if that's to change in what's normal for you, and you know it's persistent, then that's the time to go and see a doctor.
1: And very, very importantly, what you've described are uh, the, uh, the, the sort of vague the vague mm. nature yeah. of the symptoms, which not all doctors would put those symptoms together with the risk of ovarian
0: cancer. No, they don't. And that's, that's, that's un- unfortunate history that, you know, it's not unusual to find a, a patient who's you know, ultimately is diagnosed with with ovarian cancer who's been to see doctors for the last two or three years with vague symptoms and has been dismissed as being menopausal or something else. And certainly if we're talking bloating, fullness after eating
1: small amounts and that sort of thing, a lot of doctors would be going down the gastroenterological route
3: and Um, organising all sorts
0: of tests for tummies and intestines. Yeah, and looking, you know, colonoscopies and gastroscopies and so on, which look on the inside of the intestines will not see a problem with the ovaries. That's right.
1: So one of the messages, if I'm hearing this correctly, is women may need to be prepared to give their doctors a nudge uh, to be aware that these symptoms can indicate something and if the doctor is him or herself not aware of that mm-hmm.
0: uh, then to perhaps say well uh, this could be my ovaries do you want to have a little absolutely yes absolutely that is that is so important we do actually have to unfortunately you know, we have to take responsibility we have to push for some of these things if we uh, you know we think we probably know better about our own bodies
3: prudence um are there studies that um uh, attend to distribution by ethnicity of ovarian cancer?
0: Um, yes, I mean, they have been. Um, uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously, the, the as we said, you know, there's, there's a very strong um, set of mutations within the Ashkenazi Jewish populations. Um, it's, it's a bit difficult, I think, in, in that... Actually, ovarian cancer also tends to be far more prevalent in kind of Western societies. So <clears throat> I think, you know, that, that kind of complicates whether we are looking also at other kinds of uh, environmental or dietary or other factors that may play into this, as well as the, the genetic ones. But when I started getting involved in this, like, 20 years ago, we, th- we understood that probably 5% of ovarian cancers were genetic in origin. That number's now up to 20%. In other words, we've identified the genetic Mutations that are occurring, and we'll probably find what that you know in another few years it's going to be 50% of of them are actually genetically kind of related. So, I think you know, part of the good news is that as our research into sort of genetic mutations is improving, we are identifying more and more um, of, of those sort of potential conditions that will give rise.
2: Three triple. You're listening to Radio Therapy on 3 Triple R with me, Miss Diagnosis, temporarily taking over hosting duties for Dr Nick, which I will explain in just a moment. Uh, in the studio with me this morning, uh, we have our newest recruit, scientist and psychotherapist, Prudence Dear, and, of course, panel beater on both the desk and the microphone. But over to you, Dr Nick. Is there a burning issue that you want to talk to us about this morning?
1: My first burning issue is we have actually moved to... Um, ditch daylight savings. I think it's 10.35, not 11.35. But <laughs> it is 11.35, but
2: the clock says 10. Th- so it is, yes, 11.35. Let's go with that.
1: <laughs> so Now we've got kind of thoroughly confused about what the time is. It's 10.35. Um, my burning issue is I, I'm very, very excited because here we are in Victoria. Uh, for the first time, start of April, we brought in our real-time prescription monitoring service. Uh, now, people out there might think, well, what an earth is he talking about but uh, many people may be aware that we have a massive problem in this country and in fact worldwide uh, with misuse of some of our prescription medications, particularly we're talking about opiates, things like morphine, endo and oxycontin Benzodiazepines, things like Valium, diazepam, temazepam, that sort of thing, and some other medications. And what people, I don't think, realise is these these drugs are incredibly dangerous when misused. And they now, in this country, we kill far more people with our prescription medications than die in the road toll. And that is an astonishing and terrifying statistic. And one of the ways we've talked for a long time about maybe being able to protect against harms coming from these medications is for doctors and pharmacists to have information about who is getting these things. So what's called a real-time prescription monitoring service. The coroner has been calling for this year after year and we finally have it. It began on the 1st of April in this state statewide. Uh, It's called SafeScript and we can now find out what our patients have been taking. It's a major advance.
2: So, Dr. Dick, does that mean that if I go to the pharmacist, they know just how many times I've had amoxicillin in the past? What is it that we're monitoring here?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, we're not. Uh, we don't have Big Brother looking at how much antibiotic you're using and saying, no, nope, can't have any more of that. It's, it's not around every prescription. So, uh, it, this system only covers certain dangerous and addictive medications. And the ones that are covered, are the so called S8s, these are the very restricted drugs, these are morphine-based drugs, the opiates uh, and the stimulants, things like Ritalin. Um, so those sorts of medications are all covered. As I say, the benzodiazepines, these are the the sleeping tablets, that sort of stuff. Uh, when that includes also what we call the Z drugs, so piclonzolpidem, stilnox and imavane are also covered... Uh, And then the other drug that's covered curiously is quetiapine, which is an antipsychotic trade name, is Seroquel, uh, which might seem unusual, but it has become a major drug of misuse. So that is also included, but not your antibiotics and so on.
2: Oh, well, I can, I can rest assured with that.
3: Dr Nick, so where does the intervention occur? Does it occur at the pharmacy or at the GP? So it can occur at either place. Uh, I'll give you a very
1: simple example. So a patient of mine came to me and said uh, that I'd given him a prescription for Panadine Fort, which contains codeine. That's one of the drugs that's in this system. He said to me he'd lost his prescription. Uh, (laughs) This is a fairly common thing that people tell you when they want to get some more of something they shouldn't really have. I could immediately jump onto this website and have a look and see that this prescription had not been dispensed. I thought he was telling me the truth, and indeed he was. So I could reasonably supply him with a new prescription because he uses this stuff safely and sensibly. Mm. Uh, But I could check that he wasn't misusing, and that's the beauty of this system. It doesn't tell me a sort of aggregate of what's happened in the last few months. It tells me what happened
3: yesterday. Yesterday. In, in which case, what's the distinction to be made with My Health and so, this record keeping? So
1: this is completely separate from the My Health record. So My Health record is your universal health record which you can choose to opt out of if you want to. Safe script is um, is collecting data electronically that goes via pharmacies and there is no choice. You cannot opt out of this. You cannot say, well, I don't want anyone collecting my pharmacy data. <laughs> Which is probably the very
3: basis a lot of people did opt out of My Health.
1: Yeah, so the, the, so the My Health records, um, lots and lots of other aspects to that and maybe reasons why people... <coughs> excuse me, don't want their data collected for My Health Record with this pharmacy data, there is no option. It is collected electronically. And um, one of the things that's important for users to understand is that not all the prescriptions are collected because there's still people who handwrite prescriptions, so they're not collected electronically. Uh, the hospitals are not yet linked to this, so the hospital prescriptions aren't linked. But all of the dispensing All of the pharmacists in Victoria are electronically linked to this system. So everything that is dispensed that is covered by this new system, SafeScript, will be captured.
3: it just occurs to me I had reason to get a prescription filled relatively recently and I was handed by the from the GP a, a piece of paper and on my way to the pharmacy I thought, this is old, this is old-fashioned. What am I doing with a piece of paper to go and get my pills? You know, um, are we far away from getting rid of the paper? So if it's electronically recorded, surely you just go down the... Pharmacy.
1: Yes, and there, and there are systems in other countries where when the doctor writes the prescription in inverted commas electronically, it is just transmitted to the pharmacy and no piece of paper changes hands. Um, and nothing but, to lose, is and, and we're almost in that situation. So this is being electronically transmitted. But because of this reality that uh, not everybody is linked to the same system with the same right. software in the same way, we're not, we aren't quite paperless yet. <laughs>
2: So this is, a, this is a website, is that right, that you can check?
1: Yes, so this is an online portal. Um, and the way the software that doctors use, uh, and the same is, uh, is true for the pharmacist, is that when one of these target medications comes up, the software automatically checks with the website. So I will get a little traffic light symbol comes up green amber or red so if it's green it says oh, there are no no previous target drugs here amber yeah this person's had one or two but uh, doesn't look as though it's getting out of hand red means whoa and there's a certain criteria for red but if it's red I cannot write that prescription till I have gone into the website and I've looked at that patient's data so it's a, it's, a, it's it controls our behavior which is In my view excellent.
2: What a fascinating new piece of technology. Have you had much feedback from other doctors at the practice about how they've been using this?
1: So it's brand new it only came in on the 1st of April and people are still finding their feet with it Um, but uh, (laughs) I got very cross because I had patients who was legitimately using five different target medications and every single time I tried to write a script I had to go back into the software and okay it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good because these are dangerous drugs. And that woman, I showed it to her and she said, this is fantastic. She knew how dangerous these drugs were. She said, it's fantastic that the system is monitoring my
0: use. Yeah, look, I mean, it sounds obviously like a great idea. I'm just, um, I'm always, um, you know, the devil's advocate. So, you know, you've got a patient, uh, they say they've been doctor shopping, they've been to several doctors, they've got, you know, three scripts for end known and they go to different chemists and pharmacists and get them stuff dispensed because they've got a problem, you know, they've got a dependency. Um, so they rock up now to the, the GP and you're effectively going to cut off supply. So what else are you going to do then for this person? Because you can't if you send them out without a prescription or without something, or something other intervention they're going to go and find something else on the streets you know black market off their mates whatever
1: yeah a really really good question and i would hope it's not just a question of cutting off supply the first thing is it should be alerting the doctor or the dispenser to the fact that there is a problem in the first place and someone who's doctor shopping going around lots of different prescribers and dispensers uh, it may not have been known to anyone that this person actually had an mm-hmm. opiate addiction. Um, I've been in this situation. I had a patient come to me and say, uh, I, I need to finally <laughs> fess up. I've been getting lots of drugs from lots of different doctors. I now need help. She chose to come and ask for that. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to push people into having to get it because if someone comes to me and I look up on SafeScript and they've had too much, it's not necessarily a question of saying, I'm not going to give you any, uh, but it may well be saying, It looks like there's a problem here. What are we going to do about this? And it's not a question of saying no in that situation, Mm. but it may well be a question of saying, ooh, let's talk.
0: Yeah, and, and that takes time, and obviously some of these these people may be going to bulk billing, uh, you know, practices where they may get a very limited amount of time with the GP. So it's 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 a, presumably there's going to be a fair bit of GP education here to say you know you've got to actually you know initiate some kind of interventional referral for these people.
1: And we need some GP education because we are the worst of the bunch. I mean we're the ones who've been dishing these things out to people left, right, and centre, uh, and <laughs> so we're we're the ones whose behaviour needs to change. Not just us. I mean, I'm, I won't let the
3: specialists off the but yeah Don't we wanna, need to change not not wanting to cast aspersions at all dr nick but are the same doctors who are over prescribing still going to over prescribe e- regardless of the system so uh, they've had a system like this in tasmania
1: for a number of years and what worked really well in tasmania was pushing information so they actually had pharmacists looking at who the reckless prescribers were and ringing them up and right. and uh, what really changed behavior was when there was an active intervention We've literally just started this. It is only in the (laughs) state. It's not nationwide. Um, But I think your question is an excellent one because there are people out there whose behaviour has always been appalling Mm -hmm. who won't just stop because a piece of software is waving red flags at them. Um, but watch this space because what I would hope is that as we roll this out and as information becomes more available it 'll be something where the, the naughty doctors are jumped on.
3: I am um, being at the other end of assignment submissions, um, I notice students submitting medical certificates from you know same doctors, and um, you know you, you start to very quickly get to know there what 's going on.
2: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Misdiagnosis. uh, It's Easter Sunday, the Easter eggs are out. Easter eggs are, interestingly, in a software sense, uh, sometimes those little hidden things, which can be nice, they can be nasty, uh, which is a little segue to what you're talking about with toxicology and sometimes nice things that turn nasty.
2: Exactly. Uh, So I had the pleasure of attending um, a toxicology workshop when I was on my rural placement and I thought what better time to bring up some of the lessons in toxicology than on Easter Sunday when we have a lot of little kids out in the garden wandering around under things potentially climbing up into medicine cabinets uh, and just thought that I'd, I'd have a chat with all of you about some of the lessons that I learned from that particular workshop.
1: So we're not talking about the dangers of too much chocolate?
2: Well we'll get to that <laughs> oh, so we, we, we will but uh... we might just run out of time. <laughs> all right well, if we strategically run out of time then of course there are no dangers of too much chocolate Um, so I I think to start with I just wanted to alert everybody to the poisons hotline which was one of the first things that came up in this toxicology workshop which is a a free phone service available all throughout Australia that anyone is able to ring to access at any time and it's staffed by um, clinical pharmacists who are incredible and know their work so well and they can give lots of advice about uh, symptom management, when to seek further help, and when just to sit back on the couch and have a couple of glasses of water. So the phone number for that is 13 11 26. And you write that down
1: 13, 13 11, 11 26. 26. The poisons hotline. And well, that's hotline. 24 hours a day, seven days a week?
2: That's correct, yes. Mm-hmm. And staffed by some, some pretty incredible pharmacists there. Um, so we had some of those pharmacists come in and have a chat to us about things that they get called about. Frequently, and one of the things that they said was that especially when you've got young kids and around Easter, and you know, maybe you give these kids multivitamins that are in those nice, sort of soft, chewy, sugary capsules, and kids learn that medications are actually not so bad after all, they're quite tasty. And what do these sort of explorative two year olds do? Well, they like to climb up on things. They like to open containers and they like to try and find those tasty things and especially in the context of Easter egg hunting. So this is just sort of a little bit of advice to everybody out there, especially with young kids, that if you do have a medication cabinet or you do have a medication box... One of the best things you can do is probably putting a padlock on it and even a little combination lock because as actually one of the um, one of the clinical toxicologists was telling us, she had her own child do this, and she 'd put it up somewhere high and somewhere safe and somewhere far away, and yet her two year old still managed to climb up on the bench and get into the into the box itself. And there are a lot of problems that can happen with this. You know, we've got um, sometimes so, the so,
1: kids... So, so let's just clarify that because that's really important because most of us would think by sticking it in a cupboard that's up, apparently out of reach, that's enough. But you're saying that because, <laughs> because toddlers have such a facility for clambering on things and putting chairs to get to cupboards, don't just stick them in a cupboard, lock them up.
2: And that that was the advice from this workshop, that obviously it depends on the dexterity of your child. But, uh, you know, kids like to climb things and they like to try and um, overcome challenges, essentially. And if they see that you've got those those lovely sort of chewable lollies and you've put them up in a box high, they think, well, fantastic. Maybe okay. I'll climb up there. No, so putting a, putting a padlock on, you know, and you can put a little combination lock or something so you never have to forget the key because obviously if you need the medications, you do want to be able to access them, um, might be some of, the, some of the best things that you can do with that. The other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, some of the things in these medicine cabinets that actually can be really, really... Um, quite problematic and sometimes fatal to little kids. And we're talking about things here where they you know, they climb up, they're looking for something, they just try and taste everything in the medicine box itself, which is, of course, not ideal. And one of the things that I was very surprised at was uh, this medication called Colchicine.
1: Colchicine.
2: Colchicine. So mm-hmm. Colchicine is a gout medication. So it might be something that a grandparent might have um, in a medicine cabinet or you know, under the sink or somewhere to treat a gouty flare now coltracine is is actually in very high doses one a very very deadly medication i had no idea about this before the toxicology workshop
1: And is this one they say they're seeing on a regular basis, colchicine poisoning?
2: Not on a super regular basis, but when it does come in, it's really bad.
1: OK. And your point is important because anyone who's had gout might have it lying around because it's not like an antibiotic where you use it and it's finished. It's the sort of thing you might keep a supply should another episode of gout occur.
2: Exactly. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up this morning is it is one of those, uh, in some ways, seemingly kind of harmless. You think, well, it treats gout. You know, it's it's for grandpa's big toe. It's not, it's not going to do much harm. But what it actually does is in some ways it, it can inhibit uh, mitosis in cells. So it stops cell division. Uh, and what that means is you end up um, very kind of quickly having... All these gastrointestinal intestinal symptoms so you get your nausea your vomiting your diarrhea which can progress into complete heart failure liver toxicity and all sorts of things that can be quite fatal
1: yikes so lock up your culture see what else were they talking about
2: so if we if we venture away from the medicine cabinet and into the garden so i'm doing my easter step, egg hunt exactly so you've taken your little easter eggs out and you've popped them all over the garden in sort of semi-obvious places depending on the age of your children um and then your kids go crawling around in the garden, picking up uh, little pots and looking under them. What do you think they might find under some of those pots?
1: Last year's Easter egg.
2: <laughs> Last year's Easter eggs and potentially a redback spider. <laughs> so then we spoke about spider bites. Are they tasty? The redback spiders. <laughs> I haven't partaken, although actually, when I was on this rural placement, I thought, I'll go study in the garden. I went and I pulled, pulled the table out outside. I was studying in the garden. Thought, oh, there are a lot of spider webs under here. Turned the table over, no joke, two days after this toxicology workshop, two redback spiders under the table. Right, well, I'm I'm not going to be studying in the garden anymore. I go straight back inside.
1: So, just how nasty are the redbacks? Oh,
2: well, they can feel pretty bad. Uh, so the bites themselves are. What do you
1: mean they get depressed? The poor old spiders. I oh, feel so bad. Yeah, well, they're basic. alone
2: on Easter out in the garden. <laughs> no, the, the bites themselves can be can be really really nasty. They can hurt a lot. You can get it in even if you get a bite in one toe, you can feel it in the other leg. You know, they're, they're really, really nasty bites and certainly if you've got little kids and you're worried about them, you should always take them to the doctor. I think that's that should never really be in question. The good thing to know is these bites, they're, they're not lethal.
1: Not even to a child?
2: Not even to a child. So they're not lethal, the poison in them isn't... There is really very small role for anti-venom. It's quite controversial. It's, you know, I tend on the small to no role of anti-venom. So, you know, trying to capture the spider and take the kid into ED to get an anti-venom is not really going to do very much you know, what we sort of recommend with this kind of stuff, I, I say we, I mean, obviously I'm a student, I recommend nothing. What the people who were teaching me were recommending <laughs> was, um, you know, simple analgesia, so um, looking at giving them some of the kids the pet, kids Panadol.
1: So pain, pain relief only for the yeah. red back. Do we, do we have any spider in Victoria that can kill you that's nastier than the red back?
2: Uh, I'm sure we do. I wonder if... Um,
1: the
3: if funnel webs are not so friendly, is it?
1: Well, the f- yes, Then uh, um, the funnel webs, I think... Uh, this is another beautiful outcome. Climate change, they're marching south and heading across the border into Victoria <laughs> trying to find a new home because funnel webs have always traditionally had their home in New South Wales, but I think they're beginning to wander down to Vic and have a holiday down here. But uh, other than those, I don't think we have any na- really nasty ones. The Black Widow? <laughs> I think the black widow is a goer. Yeah, but I don't think it kills you, a black widow. Doesn't it? No.
2: <sighs> but the Did other the... one that is commonly spoken about is the whitetail spider.
1: Oh, the whitetail spider. Tell yeah. us about that.
2: People get very, very worried about the whitetail spider. And that's mostly because there was this query around necrotizing skin lesions, which you can be rest assured this Easter Sunday, whitetail spiders do not cause necrotizing skin lesions. So we can be a bit less worried about whitetail spiders. I mean, that. Being said, you know, probably maybe don't put the Easter eggs under the spider web infested uh, pots in the garden. Maybe just keep them out in the flowers.
1: But it's worth it's worth repeating that because the white tail myth is a very very persistent one in the community and amongst doctors who think that a bite from a white tailed spider is somehow dangerous. There are sores that people can get from any kind of bite, which is this thing called the tail bug and that's a completely separate infection but it's got nothing to do with the spider or other creature that bit you. So there is, there's really nothing that a white tail does that's different from just a nasty bite or a sting. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. So, so the other thing that happens when you do the Easter egg hunt is the kids don't find the Easter eggs and the family dog wanders around afterwards and snuffles them all up.
2: Exactly, and that was that was the last point about the chocolate overdose. So, you know, whilst you're putting these these Easter eggs out in the garden, make sure you keep count of how many you've put out there, and if you have uh, if you have any pets, any dogs, you keep them out of the garden entirely during the Easter egg hunt because uh, chocolate is actually toxic for dogs and that was that sort of famous oreo commercial where that you know mum says chocolate isn't good for dogs and mum was completely right it's a compound called theobromine in ah chocolate.
1: theobromine Theos. yes it was on the tip mm. of your tongue dr nick
2: theobromine <laughs> uh, but theobromine is a is a toxic compound in chocolate it is there is a higher uh, concentration of theobromine in darker chocolates because it comes from the cacao itself um so any dark chocolate lovers Keep it away from your dogs this Easter.
1: And if the dog does happen to snuffle up a whole load of Easter egg, do you, do you have any idea how much the dog has to eat before we worry or no. when we call a vet?
2: I'm just trying to learn the entirety of human medicine at the moment. I'm afraid <laughs> Dr. <Yes. laughs> not veterinary
1: science. Come as on, well. that's a little veterinary question. I'm, uh, I'm looking to you, Prudence,
3: you've got a uh, dog.
0: Well, having taken the dog to the vet in exactly those circumstances, um, he ate an entire bar of Cadbury chocolate. So. I thought that was enough. I mean, I, I suspect actually, as you say, it needs to be dark chocolate, a lot of dairy chocolate. I don't think it's too high risk, but, I mean, you know, they're our best friends, so we don't take the risk. Go to the vet. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.